This episode of the Mind Forever podcast is sponsored by Gamefly. Gamefly is the number one video game rental service. We've all purchased a game that just sucked, right? And you feel like you wasted your money. And if you go try to sell the game back to you know who, you're only going to get about five or six dollars on a game that you paid seventy to eighty dollars for. Why not alleviate all that and rent the game first? This is what Gamefly gives you the opportunity to do. Rent and buy games for your PS4, your Nintendo Switch, your Xbox One, or whatever system you have. Rent it before you purchase it. So for my podcast listeners, I have an exclusive offer on my website. Sign up for Gamefly and get a free 30-day trial when you go to seanjmore.com slash podsponsors. That's seanjmore.com slash podsponsors for an opportunity to sign up for a free 30-day trial. While you're on that page, check out the other podcast sponsors, which include Grammarly, Loot Crate, and BarkBox. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. We're going to hop right back into part two of the interview with Dr. Terrell Strayhorn. So yeah, I did. I wrote that letter, the open letter <clears throat> to create closure um, at the top of the year. Actually, I've been working on it. Um, and just to bring your listeners up to speed, I mean, most of this information is public in a way. Um, I resigned my position at my former institution, the Ohio State University, on May 3rd of last year. May 3rd is significant to me because it's my birthday. Um, wow. I didn't resign on my birthday. I resigned on the last day of the spring semester that year, which happened to be my birthday. <laughs> um, and I don't know, you know. I keep saying it, but let me tell you the origin of it. All of life is connected. So in 2012, I gave my first TED Talk. And when you give a TED Talk, um, sometimes the TED network that you're speaking for will connect you to a writing, I'm, I'm sorry, a speech coach. And I've never had a speech coach. In fact, I've never taken a speech class. I've never taken a communications class. Um, anything that looks like it was you know, polished came out of experience or through the good influence and teaching of my parents, my grandmother, and my pastor's wife growing up, probably my pastor too, he's deceased now, but um, growing up, I had a really wonderful pastor and his first lady, his wife, who I saw her, oh my gosh, Sean, at Christmas, um, I went home and we went to her house, she's in her 90s now, and but she's so present and mm. you know, she's so proud of the success I've been able to enjoy professionally. She keeps up with me and she says all the time, like I looked at it, my grandson came and showed me a YouTube of you speaking and whatever it is. And I said, you know, a lot of that, her name is Aunt Helen. I said, a lot of that I owe to you Aunt Helen because as a kid, I remember being like six or seven years old and Aunt Helen would come into our church. Our church was very, very large at that time, like two, 3000 people and she would, come up, I'm six years old, and she would get in the mic and she'd say, Terrell, come here, come up here and read this scripture. And I would, you know, I, she would not tolerate me saying, oh no, I'm afraid of crowds, or oh no, I'm too nervous. Once she tells you to get up, you gotta get up. So I would get up, I'd go to the front, and here I am, six years old, standing in front of two and 3,000 people reading the scripture. Or she'd say, get up and recite something in front of people, and I'd get up on demand and recite something in front of all these people. Well, that was really good training for me to get over stage fright and all those kinds of things. Um, and I think ultimately it gave me enough experience to where I could enter speaking spaces with some familiarity with what that in entails. Well, um, you know, in giving a TED talk, the speech coach, <clears throat> excuse me, mine, told me three things about TED. TED is all about big ideas. It's a network 
that is committed to spreading big ideas. Secondly, they told me that all of life is connected. And then they told me this story about this couple who had gone to the park for a walk. On their walk, they discovered a car off in the distance that was smoking and in flames. As they approached the car, they realized there's a man inside the car. They look at each other. They know exactly in the moment what to do. They must help this man get out of the car before it's totally engulfed in flames. Working as a team, they open the car. They grab the man. They pull and yank and do everything they can just in time to get him to safety as the car is engulfed in flames. The man's badly burned. And just before he sort of lapses into um, or passes out, probably from the pain, I'm not sure if it's a coma or what's happening, but just before he passes out, his eyes lock eyes with the woman and the couple. And then he's unconscious, goes to the hospital, he's treated. Okay, a few years later, the same couple's in their bathroom getting ready to go to work, and the woman's um, putting lotion on her body, and she discovers a lump on her breast. She goes to the doctor, she gets checked. Sure enough, it's something they want to have removed. They prepare her for surgery. The day of her surgery, the nurse tells her that the anesthesiologist is going to come in, and after that, she's then going to be out, and she'll be back in the recovery room. Well, as the anesthesiologist makes his way into the surgery room, their eyes lock, and the woman breaks down into tears, and the anesthesiologist breaks down into tears because they realize then that the anesthesiologist is the man that the woman saved from the fire several years before. Wow. And now she saved his life, and now he's about to participate in saving her life. Well, my speech coach told me that story. I mean, I still get goosebumps when I tell it the right way, um, <laughs> even now. <clears throat> and, and it's a powerful illustration of how connected life is. You know, It can be as dramatic as that. It could also be that I'm now teaching at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, but I'm reaching out to Susan Comavase, who got her, de her degree from there. And just like she helps me figure out how to negotiate public speaking and consulting, I get, have the opportunity to bring her back to the University of Tennessee Knoxville to share her wisdom with the campus. All of life is connected. That's um, the second thing that this uh, speech coach told me. And then third and finally is that when you get up to speech, just remember no one knows your talk better than you. So don't ever worry about, you know, I skipped a slide or I skipped a, a story. No one knows what you're going to do. Most importantly, stories are golden. People love stories. So um, all of that for me is reflected in what happened here. So May 3rd, I decide I'm going to leave Ohio State after the unfolding of a very unfortunate set of circumstances that really reduces down to a difference of opinion, not a difference of policy, not a difference of legal matters, but a difference of opinion between me and one of my supervisors who I ultimately reported to at the time. And that is, what is this stuff that I'm doing called public engagement, the public speaking? Um, one, what is it? Where does it fit in the portfolio of the scholar's life? Even more directly, where does it fit in terms of my evaluation? You know, So teaching is evaluated through teaching evaluations. My students complete those. Um, you know, this, this podcast is really about leadership. Leadership can be evaluated by those who follow me, um, and as well as those who supervise me. But this other stuff, like going to other campuses and giving keynotes and connecting with thousands upon thousands of people, what is it? Where does it fit in the slots of 
teaching, research, and service. Secondly, how do you evaluate it? You know, when is enough enough? When is too much too much? When is not enough enough? Um, and how do you rate the quality of it? I mean, is it based on the supervisor's opinion of whether it's a good talk or not? Is it that my talks have to fit the university's mission? I mean, you have, you have a lot of questions you could play with there. And then third and finally was, so then what are the um, practices that should govern the scholars' involvement in these activities? In other words, if this is my job, should I be paid for it? Should I not be paid for it? Is it my job at Ohio State to do this? Is it not my job to do it? Um, so we ended up in this really heated um, episode of conversations over the course of time about these questions. Now, Sean, I'll say now, I've said it in written form, I've said it in uh, you know conversations that uh, are reflected in reports at the Ohio State University. When this first started, which for me is like the fall of 2016, I had no idea what this was about. I thought it was simply a, set, a good exercise to figure out what, what am I doing? Let's be clear about it. Where does it fit? Um, and because there had been significant turnover in leadership at Ohio State, and there continues to be, um, we had a new president. The new president came with the new, or after the new president, uh, Michael Drake was there. We got a new provost. Um, the new provost reorganized academic affairs and as a center director I reported to the provost my letter of appointment when I directed one of these research centers called the Center for Higher Education Enterprise at Ohio State um, said that I would report to the provost but when the new provost came so the provost who appointed me in that role is not the provost who was ultimately there when I resigned but the new provost wanted a different um, organization to the office of academic affairs so instead of reporting to him he would have center directors report to a vice provost. And it was sort of luck of the draw. He decided who was gonna be. I ended up reporting to a vice provost who I later learned had a um, significant opinion about my engagement in these activities. And I learned all sorts of things that I'm really excited to share some today. And I hope in many, many um, future uh, opportunities I'll do the same. Um, but you know, so when I first got into this in the fall of 2016, I thought, oh, this is just, you know, a basic um, inquiry. It's a, you know, I, when I got the phone call saying, hey, your name's come up for a travel audit, I thought, I asked them, I said, is this anything to be concerned about? They said, no, no, these are very rudimentary. They're very, they happen all the time for people who travel a lot. So I didn't think anything of it. I participated fully in the process. I met with folks. I talked about my um, involvements, my, my engagement. I had filled out all the paperwork for my travel. I had in my paperwork with these, uh, the support of my assistants over the years, had disclosed travel, lodging, honorarium. All of these trips have been approved, so there was nothing that I thought could be um, a problem here. Well, by the turn of the year, as we move into 2017, I started picking up. Okay, this is not, this is not, this is not simple, <laughs> you know. And there, this is this is taking a little bit longer than I thought, and I felt like I was starting to. Um, feel as if there was opposition here. Well, cutting across the field a bit and getting to where I think we should go is um, at some point I realized that my supervisor was in a position 
to ask me to stop doing that, stop mm. engaging in that activity. Now, you know, if you could invite a whole bunch of people on your show right now and ask them their thoughts about this, I mean, I've done it over the course of time, not on your show, but in my own personal <laughs> life, I've learned there's a diversity of opinions here. You know, people who are professors would say things like, oh, no, 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 you have academic freedom. As a tenured, I was a tenured full professor, tenured full professor, you have academic freedom to engage in this. This is part of what we do. It is part of your service um, activities. And certainly, um, I did that. I mean, hello, this episode with you is great because we've covered it all, Sean. I mean, I said by the second year of a, as an assistant professor at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, I started doing this. And then here it is, I'm at Ohio State, I've been there for several years, I had been doing this. I've been doing this a long time, so it's not like I just started doing it. So I'm looking at the history of being engaged in this activity, I'm trying to figure out like, why is it a problem now? And why would I stop now where I feel most committed to it? Um, and so, you know, under my faculty hat, I had certain protections. But at the time this happened, I was also leading a research center. And to some people, you could say I was an administrator. I reported to up into the provost's office. So certainly I was an administrator. And there's a different set of rules that govern what administrators can do different from what faculty members could do. Right. I had never been, you know, I'd never been taught those rules and I accept my own responsibility. I had never even realized that those differences could be so stark and dramatic that I would ask, hey, um, what are the rules, you know, that I should know about as a center director? I was appointed July 1st, 2014 as center director. I moved into my center on July 1st. I, um, there was no orientation. There was no three month period of like sitting with existing centers to center directors to learn stuff. In fact, one of the major findings that came out of the travel audit from the university itself was we've actually learned that this happens a lot to people who are center directors. There's no training, there's no onboarding, there's no um, teaching them about these rules. So the recommendation to the university was set up an orientation program, especially for academics, professors who become administrators so they know what the differences are. But even then, it doesn't explain away why this ended this way because you know that could have been the end of it. We could have said, oh, he didn't know, we didn't teach him. Hey, here are the rules now going forward, govern yourself accordingly, which I would have been happy to comply with. But the insistence was not on learning or negotiating or coming to an agreement. The insistence was on me stopping it immediately, 100%, never to return to it so long as I was in that role. And, um, and that was exactly what you're asking me. And that was the motivation for that sentence. I spent many days crying at home thinking, should I hang up my passion, give up my commitment? You know, is it so bad to just want to connect with people beyond the academy? Um, and mind you, at this point, I've, I've trained years and years of students who have those same passions and commitments. So I'm sitting you know, my mind thinking like, what does this mean for them? And now they're out professors at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, at Penn State, at the University of Missouri, the University of North Florida, and, and they're doing the exact same thing at Embry-Riddle. They're at these institutions doing research with this commitment to public engagement and 
look wh- where it can lead you. And and I thought about it. I thought about hanging it up. I thought about saying yes. I'll just let it go and and do whatever I guess I do if I let go of it, which I don't know what that is. <laughs> um, and I'm really blessed that good people, my family, my constructed family, I've always benefited from the presence and support of a God family wherever I lived. I lived in Columbus, Ohio. I didn't have biological family there until my sister moved um, there. But in, prior to that, I met a family um, who has been wonderful to me. And I remember as I knew things were going to become more public, I was at my godmother's house and um, I asked the family to gather around the kitchen table and I told them all that this thing had been unfolding and it had been bothering me. And so if I was acting strange the past couple of months, here's why. And, um, and that the pressure was on me to, to not do what I do best. And, and I just needed their love and support. And they did, they loved me. They, they supported me when I wanted to get my mind off of academia. They let me, you know, go to, um, to, uh, on trips. They let me play video games, you know, with family, <laughs> things that have nothing to do with my academic life, sing songs. But long story short, I ultimately um, benefited from people who believed in me and in my purpose and in my passion when I struggled to really believe in it myself. It was my students who said, ain't no way. No, no, no. You're not giving up. This is not over. You're, you're not going to hang in the hang and throw in the towel. Um, those who were closest to me who told me, um, hang in there, you're going through a dark side right now, but it gets better. And then, um, you know, my grandmother, who is deceased, but ever present in my life, um, she was a singer. And I always tell this story, so I'm trying to figure out if I'm going to how much of this I'm going to say so I don't break down on your show and then you have to like call me back for part two, right? <laughs> but my grandmother was a, she was a choir director and a singer and, um, and I'm a choir director and a singer. So there are a lot of times I start doing stuff in this space and I just get moved with emotion thinking about how wonderful I, how blessed I am to have had a grandmother who loved me the way that she did. And so um, when she was alive, she would always introduce me to really wonderful songs. She was the first person who taught me the words to this little light of mine. She taught me how it goes. She made me sing it at church. But I remember she taught me this song. The words are, there's a bright side somewhere. There's a bright side somewhere. Don't you give up until you find it. There's a bright side somewhere. And when she was alive, we would sing it in church. When we were at her house, when she was making breakfast, we would sing it together. She would take a verse, I'd take the verse. Oh, we had the best time with the song, Sean. But when I was going through this period of time where I was like, should I hang up everything? and I don't know, go do something else or, you know, have I, am I, are my passions inappropriate? Are my methods inappropriate? Am I, am I, you know, on the wrong track here? Those words and my grandmother's voice singing, it came back to me when I really needed it. And all my life, I focused on the part that says there's a bright side somewhere and there is, but the part that really got me where I needed to be in this moment was this, the middle part that says, don't give up until you find it. And when I was right, ready to give up, my grandmother and the people around me sort of rescued me from those thoughts and rescued me from a really difficult set of circumstances um, to realize that sometimes you can be um, 
doing the right thing, but just in the wrong place at that moment. You could be, um, do you could be in the right place for at the right time, but your time changes. And you know, so how do you think about and get ready for when it's time to do something different? And um, you know, sometimes you can be doing the right thing, and especially when you do the right thing, or as I say, do good work. Um, doing good work brings a heightened level of um, surveillance. People are watching you, <clears throat> especially as you start doing the good work of diversity mm. and you start thinking about groups that are underserved. And I, I say this all the time. So this is why I said the lessons that came out of this is crazy, Sean. Like <laughs> I realized that people love that um, people love people, but not all people love everybody. Wow. Yeah. I, I realized that there are a lot of people in higher education. They say, oh, I got in higher education because I love students. But I realized they don't love all students. That's a lot to unpack. And That's a lot to unpack. It's a lot to unpack, <laughs> but it's so true. Like, you can be, and these are well-intended people, um, but, you know, there are people who are committed to access, but not committed to access for all groups. Mm. And when you start working through your gifts and your talents and your passion and your skills and creating new opportunities for people that you care about, you might encounter people who feel differently from you. And sometimes, you know, the cards are stacked that that person's in a position to um, make things difficult for you or to even um, make it difficult for you to continue that work. And now you've got the question of how bad do you want to do this? Do you want to do it? So are you so committed to, are you so sure that this is what you want to do that you're willing to, and it's so crazy, all of life is connected now, I'm promising you some tears, I'm telling you. My, my advisor, Don Creamer, tell me sometimes, he was like, Terrell, my, my advisor, by the way, Spirit of Transparency, um, is probably now, I would guess Don's at least in his late 70s, he may be early 80s, but he's a white male from Texas. He does not look like me. To me, he looks like Hulk Hogan, a little older than Hulk Hogan, but he looks like the Hulk Hogan. They have, he has that blonde hair. He's wonderful. He's always been wonderful. But when people say things like, you know, who's your mentor? Who was your advisor? I think they always expected to be an African-American male or a black person. I've benefited from the support and um, encouragement of black people my entire life. I do have black mentors, but my advisor, who's also a mentor and a life coach to me as a white male. So this is just simply the pushback against this idea that we can't work with each other and for each other across race and other forms of difference. Don is incredible. And he would tell me things like, Terrell, as a black man in the academy, you're gonna face some things that I would not face. And there are gonna be some days that you're gonna wanna quit. But he gave me some advice I got as a doctoral student that I needed as I was going through this last episode. And that is, you know, there will be some days that you will face what he called stand on the table issues. You're going to want to stand on the table. You're going to want to bang on the tables. You're going to want to make some noise. He said, but remember this, every issue is not a stand on the table issue. Your job is to figure out which ones are, which ones are not maintain a level head and the moment you cannot he would say in his own his little texas draw he would say in the moment you figure out that you can't do that well my friend you found a moment where you should resign hmm. and and i did i spent months thinking should i do it should i not can it work out can it not 
why can't people be reasonable? Um, don't they get it? This is like my lifeline. Um, I would be of no use to the university if I can't do this in addition to teaching and scholarship. My students got it. I mean, you can look at, at the Medium site. You can look at my Facebook. The people who have poured out love apart from my colleagues and, and family and good folks like you and others across the country from that open letter are my students. My students are the ones who write comments like, I've always benefited from your classes. Your classes were some of the best I've ever had. Because in that class, it wasn't just like the curriculum. It wasn't just, here's the reading, let's talk about it. It was always the reading, the moment, their feelings, my feelings, you know, exactly what I, I had come to deliver in my public talks. So I kept thinking like, why can't people just agree? And why can't we just work this out? And then I started, Fear of transparency. I started not being level-headed. I started not thinking the right way. Um, I started. It was it was difficult for me at the end to maintain my emotions um, when I was being um, cast in ways that don't reflect who I am. When I was being told that you know I'm striving to be famous versus to use my work to create opportunities for people. Um, then when I was being cast by people there and ultimately by the media as one who was maybe money hungry and just wanted to give a lot of talks, make a lot of money. Um, I had one time a reporter asked me, what'd you do with some of the money? And you know, I, they, what they do, at least in my case, was they send these questions and then five minutes later, they run the story and they say things like, oh, well, Strayhorn didn't return comment. Well, you know, I have lived a complicated life like everybody. And so if I don't get your email, you're right. I don't respond because I don't have I didn't get your email. You know, right, right. Um, but I love some of the questions they ask. I wish a reporter would have contacted me and given me the chance to talk about what I did with some of the money that I earned, not pocketed, not took. That's the phrases that they use in the story. But I earned every single keynote that gave me an honorarium. There's someone on LinkedIn, Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, um, Medium right now talking about what that keynote did for them. They remember. Here, I mean, I've had people write on my LinkedIn, I'm remembering a keynote of yours three years ago. In fact, I had a woman yesterday tell me, you know, me and my staff listen to your keynotes at the beginning of every staff meeting. We take an excerpt from one of your keynotes five minutes, seven minutes, and we use it as a talking point for our meeting, uh, as a, for our meeting. You know, that's not, that's simply to say that whatever's happening in these public talks over the last many years, um, you know, has been meaningful, it's made a difference, people are using it, and I'm so blessed and so fortunate that I've had the opportunity to be that kind of instrument. But, you know, in exchange for the, the, the sharing, the preparation, the keynote, the energy, the emotion, the humor, the stories, in exchange for that, I received a speaker's fee. And nowhere in my university contract for either of my last institutions did it say, as a professor, part, part of your job is to give public talks. Neither was it the case that when I became a center director at Ohio State, in this case, did it say, part of your job is to give public talks. So public talks of this kind have always been above and beyond the call of duty. Therefore, I received the compensation for it. And um, that compensation has been incredible because what I would have been able to do with that money, and if a reporter had given me the chance to do it, I would have set up the show for them. I would have said, absolutely, I can tell you what I did for it. And here are some names of students 
who you should have on your show who can tell you, Dr. Strayhorn paid for my way to a conference. Dr. Strayhorn um, gave me money, sometimes my graduate students, sometimes not undergraduate students who have seen California because I was able to pay their way to a conference so they can meet with professors because I know it's really important for professors to meet students before they'll admit them. And now they're in graduate school in California. Now, I'll admit, the students who we're talking about are by and large students of color, low income, first generation, um, students who didn't have these resources. But I firmly believe as a reflection of my professional um, values and my spiritual beliefs that you know, to whom much is given, much is required. And as I came into these resources, I've always gone out of my way to use them for the benefit of not only my own family, but also my students and students who I meet all the time. And, and that's great. And I think that is appropriate and it's right and it's, and it's, um, and it's good. But I do learn, or I did learn that um, there are people who have a different opinion. And I've also learned that just because they have a different difference of opinion doesn't mean that they're right. Um, and, I, and, and to close it, what I realized is <laughs> that I will not allow that perspective or that opinion or what that mindset says about people like me, you know, that I'm trying to be famous. I'm not trying to be famous. In fact, I gave a talk at a high school one time. It was so funny. This is years into this. I mean, I can go to NASPA and ACPA, or as you said, you know, you cite my work in your dissertation or in your doctoral work. I'm so grateful for that. But Sean, I went to a high school and the principal saying all these accolades about me, read my whole bio, put me up to speak. I'm five minutes into my talk. I'm pulling out my best material. And this young man raises his hand. I said, yes. He said, are you almost done? And I said, um, I said, no. Why? He said, oh, when will you be done? Because he was so over it. Like, you know, th these students don't know why in the world I'm talking to them. And I remember I, I, it ended up being okay. It was a fine talk. I mean, I'm just not cool enough for them. Um, but I remember thinking when I got in my car, first of all, that kind of experience will humble you. And that's great. We all should stay humble. Mm -hmm. But by the same token, for people who think, you know, Folks like me are trying to be famous or trying to be rich and famous. Um, you know, I guarantee you, Beyonce could walk in that school. Jay Z could walk into that school. Those students, they would have their undivided attention. They would lose their mind. <laughs> they would lose their. The teachers would lose their mind. The staff would lose their mind. That's that's a level of fame worth you know talking about, I guess. But I'm not I'm not pursuing that. That's not my goal. I'm striving to. I'm having the time of my life investigating really important questions, educating generation of students both on the campus where I work, have worked, and, and, and uh, off the campuses. I'm inspiring people, but educating them at the same time. I'm challenging stereotypes. I'm defeating and fighting racism in all forms of social, um, you know, um, so other forms of social oppression, but I'm doing it in a way where I've seen victories. I've seen, I'm just gonna say it for the sake of time, like I've seen old white men come up to me at the end of my keynotes with tears in their eyes as they embrace me and pick me up off the ground. They say, man, oh, I love you. Thank you so much. And I'm sitting here, you know, with tears in my eyes as I've seen a transformation. You know, he, he is convinced that the messages that he has inherited, probably from well-intended parents about 
the capability of women and the possibility of African Americans and other people of color are wrong, and that he has an opportunity to replace that implicit bias with new thoughts that open up the possibility for all people to be successful. He's so grateful, so grateful that he doesn't even wait in line. He just walks over, doesn't even ask for permission. He just scoops me up in his arm, wraps me up, and starts crying. And that is what, you know, I've written lots of journal articles, but I've not had a journal article do that for me. I've written, what, 10 books. I've never had a book do that for me. It's in the public engagement through these lectures where I've seen grandmas find hope. I've seen white people um, not run from the, the, the awareness of their privilege, but to lean in and embrace it and own it and to sit with openness to the idea of now participating and fixing the problem. I've seen people of color from every single group, from African-American, Latino-American, Asian-American, Native American, mixed race, biracial, um, be excited to see one of us on the stage finally talking about our issues for our issues to be front stage i've seen and i and i've seen i mean i've seen many times a young man who looked just like me when i was in 6th grade or in 4th grade or in 8th grade come up at the end of a talk you know if i'm on a campus and he came with his brother or i'm at a church or at a NAACP freedom fund banquet and the parents bring their young person i've seen him come up and say you know, I don't even pay attention usually when there's a speaker, <laughs> but I paid attention today and I just want to say thank you. I, I, I own a pair of shoes. Oh gosh, it's going to take a quick story. But yeah, I own a pair of Nike Hirachis. They're red. On the back of them, they say, do good work. I own them because a public lecture led a young man to change his ways in school. I was giving a talk in Chicago, large audience, sometimes for comic relief in the middle of my talks, I allow myself to be distracted by something. I play it like it was a distraction, but really it was well, I, I intended for it to be. So I'm giving my talk, I go for a walk in the audience, I see a pair of white Nikes that I've never seen before, they're really nice. So in the middle of my talk about sense of belonging and black male success at this black male summit, I point down these shoes and say, oh, by the way, quick question, what kind of shoes are these? The young man says that they are Nike Hirachis. I'm like, oh my gosh, those are so sweet. And I make a big deal out of the shoes, and then I go back to my talk, and everybody's like, wow, that was so random, but they love it. You know, people love for people to be random. But then I go back to it later in my talk and said, just like those Nike Hirachis. Now, if I got Hirachis, I would want red ones because my favorite color is red. Um, and... And I said to him, like, what size shoe are you? And it turns out he just happened to be a nine. I'm a size nine. So I'm like, oh, I'm a size nine. And then I end it. This talk is over. At the end, I greet people. I give, take pictures. This young man comes up to me. And he says he really loved it. Well, a couple weeks later, as best I remember, I heard from the people who organized that conference. They said, hey, Dr. Strayhorn, do we have a mailing address for you? We've got to send you something. I said, sure. Here it is. Gave it to them. And then it came to my house. Um, it was a box. I remember opening it. And... Inside were these shoes with a note. The note was from the parents of this young man, not the young man who's a college student and participating in the Black Male Summit. It was his brother who happened to be in the audience with the parents that day who had not been doing well in school. Apparently, the story goes like this. The teacher calls the parents. They're like, I don't know what's happening, but he's doing better in school. He raises his hand. He doesn't talk out of turn. He's not out of his seat. What in the world do you all do to him? And so finally the parents call the teacher. 
um, to figure out what's really going on. They wait for the young man to come home. They ask him, what's up? Your teacher called. He's like, she called? I didn't do nothing. And they're like, no, actually you did do something. You're doing better. She's really proud of the success that you're making. Like you've changed you know, completely 180. What happened? And the young man said, oh, remember that speaker we heard the other week? Like, I don't know, something about what he shared. I, I just said, you know what? I gotta get on the right track. I wanna be like him. And I know I, I won't be like him if I don't get my act together now. I won't even be in college to hear speakers like him if I don't get my grades and stuff together now. So he just want, made me wanna do better. So the parents, out of their appreciation for the fact that the message hit the young man like that, remembered from the talk, which at this point is like a month old, they remembered <laughs> Nike Hirachis. If I got them, they'd be red, and my shoe size was nine. They went onto the Nike site, as best I can tell, and did the custom Nike, where you can put do good work, which has been my life motto on the back of it, and then worked with those people at the school to send them to me. Do you see how much effort went into giving me that very, very gracious gift? And I think the only thing that motivates people to go out of their way to do nice things like that for people is when you've really made a difference. And the work you're doing really makes a difference. And for me, I realized that there are, I'm not gonna talk about people. There are people, haters, all of us have haters, especially leaders that are doing good work, you're gonna have haters. Yeah. But I'm not so much concerned about haters, the people, as I am hate, the energy. That is, you're fighting hate. Hate is gonna come after you. And took me a lot of work, Sean, even it's taken me some minutes to get to this point in the, in the response, but some point I realized I'm not fighting people. People are the actors in this, but I'm fighting an energy. And it's an energy and a force that is trying to keep me from doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. And I came this close, you can't see me, but I have my fingers really, really close together. I came this close doing it and love and light rescued me love of those around me and then my grandmother reminding me you don't give up until you find it you got to find it it's gonna it's and, and finding it was hard I had to go through days of crying and days of conversations and 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 you know banging my head against the wall trying to figure out well if the trips were approved and what's the real issue and um, and then when they said, well, that's not the issue, it's about the money. Well, if the money is approved and, you know, you like my tweet, that's another thing I learned. Just because they like your tweet doesn't mean they like what you're doing, you know. Um, you liked my tweet, you retweeted it. So how is it a big problem? And ultimately when I realized that it was um, love fighting hate and it was the energy that had come to stop me from doing what I was supposed to do, I remembered the words of Don, that when you cannot maintain your level head and you can't, you realize you're not dealing with reason, it's now time to resign. But I, I clarified through that letter because I think there are people who thought, I learned after I did it, people thought, oh yeah, I thought you resigned because you wanted to be a public speaker. I thought you resigned because you wanted to be a performer. Oh, I thought you resigned because you wanted to leave the academy. I'm like, heck no, I'm a professor. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, but you know, if, if you didn't talk to me about it, you could look at the situation and say, full tenured professor, at Ohio State, he resigns? Why would he leave? He would only leave unless he wanted to do something different. And so that sentence was really important to say, on May 3rd, I resigned of my own volition because I know that if I had not, hate would have killed me. Um, and it would have killed me professionally. And I'm not sure that it would not have 
been so stressful a situation and so um, difficult a situation that there would not have been even physical, personal manifestations of that, um, that assassination. But um, before it would happen, I took strength from love and light to write my own, as one reporter said, one paragraph letter of resignation and rendered it. Um, and that's when magic happened. I started on a course of rediscovery, recommitment, and redefinition. And there were good days and bad days. At that time, to be honest, there were more bad days than good days. Um, I'm, I relocated as part of my fresh restart. And then, like most people, you know, the new year always presents an opportunity to be reflective. And I saw a lot of things on social media that said, like, new me, or new year, new me. And the cool thing about time is this. Um, you can have a new you anytime you want to. The moment you decide you're going to be different and your life is going to be different and you're going to go pursue your dreams with um, you know, unbridled passion, you can do it. You, you don't have to wait for the new year. You can have a new year today. Anybody who's listening to your show, this podcast, could have a new you right now. If whatever's going on in your world is um, in your life is not as you wish, you can decide today. You don't have to wait till 2019. You can decide today that I'm going to stop feeding the mindsets and the mess that come to destroy me. And I'm going to put my time and energy into the things that sustain me. And for me, I realize what sustains me is my writing. It's my research. It's the things that this last chaotic situation kept me from doing. Um, so that's why I needed to relocate and reset so that I could be engaged in the things that literally, like the phrase says, give me life. And once I got life, I started to live. And then once I started to live, I'm like, wait a minute, bro, you have a good life. Like you don't have to be so despondent and down. The bright side is like right over there. You know, it will come and good things await, even better things than the past. But you gotta believe in yourself if you want other people to believe in you. And I realized I was dragging the situation around with me, you know, some people weren't even aware of it. And some people had even started to not really remember much about it, but it was always on my mind. And so I wrote the open letter on January 1st and put it on social media. As I said, it was titled the open letter to create closure because January, the day it came out was the last day I allowed myself to worry about it. Mm. That's a, uh... Uh, yeah yeah you I mean as you were speaking I'm just sitting here nodding my head like yeah like it's to be able to be at a place to to identify that and be able to kind of step forward and step and lean into your passion and lean into what um is light for you or what is positive for you out of a situation that you know could have been more destructive than what it was I, I appreciate you being so transparent and being able to talk about that and and share, you know, I'm sure, you know, professionally, there are folks that are dealing with some similar instances and not really knowing where, you know, being able to discern between their profession and what are their passions and being able to continue to lean into their passions um, and not yeah. letting, uh, you know, a situation around a position or a particular place in life kind of deter them or shake their foundation from what their passion actually is. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, one of the consequent, well, thank you for that and mm -hmm. affirming that and, um, yeah, it's, a, it's been, I don't know how much time we've, we've spent, but it's, it, the, the last piece was, um, was a powerful 
powerful statement for myself. It, like, as I said, this is the first time I've, apart from writing that letter, really talked about the situation. Um, but the cool thing about it is, as I said, all of life is connected. You know, my mom, when I was going through it, she would say things like, you have to go through this and the day is gonna come when you're gonna understand why. And then sometimes she would say things like, you know, I thought you said that you were out here trying to help those who really couldn't help themselves. Or I thought you said that you were out here trying to speak for those who's, who don't have a voice. I'm like, I am. She's like, and did you think that was gonna be easy? Did you think that was gonna be easy work? Don't you think that you're gonna have to go through some hard times so that you can understand there? I can't talk about that because I'll break down tear, <laughs> into tears. But so, so I mean, there's a point where I'm like, yeah. You know, I, I didn't think it would look like this. I didn't think it would feel like this. Um, but to your point, after I released the letter and people started writing, um, I would guess there are probably like 20, 25 people who have inboxed me on Facebook, written to me on LinkedIn. I know when you say the episode is available, I'm gonna post it on all my social media and I'm gonna encourage my friends, my newfound friends to, to, to listen to this episode because 20 to 25 of the people who wrote me out of the hundreds and hundreds of people who contacted me, I'm not saying just click like, I'm talking hundreds and hundreds of people who took the time to write a message. I'd say a quarter of them are in similar situations, wrote me and said, I mean, long messages. So, you know, thank you for your letter. You don't know how it, you know, I got it at the right time. You don't know how it inspired me or how it really um, helped me because I'm going through and they named their situation. Some of them, a lot of them are in higher ed, which is, um, is so concerning for me. Yeah, It says a lot about the institutions in which we are dedicating ourselves to because I, I can yeah. there are some folks that I know I've talked to that have been in similar situations yeah at high in higher education yep. you know so I, I say um, jokingly uh, Gloria Latson Billings who's been she's a professor at the University of Wisconsin Madison she just retired um, she wrote a piece I don't know in the 90s and it was titled what is critical race theory doing in a nice field like education and the whole point of the piece is um, you know that's a she was tongue in cheek with that statement. She was joking and she, she was um, really helping us understand this stark contrast between something as, um, something as critical and as powerful as critical race theory that calls out race and racism as a permanent fixture in American society, being in a nice field like education where we work with students, we love students, right? Um, but what I've learned and known um, and certainly learned since the recent release of that letter is that education is not so nice all the time and that many of us who are out here fighting on behalf of students and populations and groups need a warrior ourselves who will fight on our behalf and I expected I would hear from some people about the letter but I don't think I anticipated how many people would be going through similar situations either in business and industry or in education and again the, the last segment I said about you know deciding today to take control of your situation to not let um, the master master you and to not allow hate to crush and drive out your love and your light and to turn you into exactly the, the force that we, we came to fight in the first place. You know, I started being bitter, oh, you know, circa May 3rd, and it's my birthday, hello. You know, so 
I, I was not a good person. I was not a happy person. I was a good person, I hope, but I was not a, ni I was not a nice person. I, I spent more days crying than smiling. I spent more days inside than outside. I was, you know, another quick story. I was still trying to speak and travel, even while there was differences of opinion, um, because one, I had already made commitments to these institutions to speak for them. I had so many talks lined up, never on Mondays, because Mondays was when I taught, but on the rest of the days of the week, sometimes I would be speaking, um, you know, like two or three times a week. And um, I had so many of these lined up that I just didn't want to abandon all 60 outstanding talks because as best I could tell, one person didn't want me doing it, no matter where they were really in the hierarchy at the time. Until I could figure out that this was more than a difference of personal opinion, I did not see a need for making that decision. I also knew, because I had signed con contracts to give these talks, that there were going to be some legal fallout if I canceled on all 60 of these. And you know, nowhere in these discussions with the unreasonable mindsets that I was confronting did people say things like, hey, well, we could loan you legal counsel to work through the contracts, to work through breaking these contracts, whatever. We would back you up and protect you. So, I mean, it felt like death upon death upon death for me. Anyway, I was still giving these um, these talks at the time, and I uh, one day was at a coffee shop crying my eyeballs out. And then I looked at my schedule, and it said um, – I had to go to this campus to speak. I think if the best I remember, the campus was in the state of Ohio. So I thought I was supposed to drive. And I hadn't really communicated much with my assistant about this particular talk as best I remember. So I, I left the coffee shop and I went to my town home, which I lived close to downtown Columbus. So I went home. Sean, as I approach home, there is this black car parked in front of my house. And there's a guy outside of the car who has on a black uniform. <laughs> I'm going through this situation, right? So I'm sitting here and I'm about to park my car, but I'm like, who is that at my house? And why is he at my door? And this is what hate and negativity will do to light, love, and positivity. It will make you schizophrenic. It will drive you crazy. It'll have you thinking you're doing wrong even when you're not doing wrong. It'll have you running when no one's chasing you. It'll have you hiding when no one's looking for you. And so I pulled my house. I'm like, oh, no, I'm not ready to go up to that house. I mean, literally in that moment, I thought about, and I mean this in complete transparency and respect, I, I thought about Trayvon Martin. I thought about Mike Brown. I thought about Eric Garner. I thought about John Crawford III. These are all Tamir Rice, all African-American men who had been killed at the hands of largely police officers or um, local residents acting in the uh, place of law enforcement. And that black uniform, the only thing I could think of was, that's a cop. But why would a cop be at my house? And I was like, oh my God, these people have called the cops for me. But what about what? You know? Mm. So all I remember is driving up and I was like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna park. I'm just gonna drive around. And and of course I'm crying at this point because I'm so afraid of nothing. I'm afraid of nothing. This situation has evolved to the point where it has me afraid of nothing. Finally, some little birdie spoke to me and said, Go park your car. So I finally do a lap come back, I park my car, my knees are shaking, my hands are shaking as I approach the door, and the guy turns around and says, are you Dr. Strayhorn? I'm crying my eyeballs out, so I'm like, yes. He said, oh, I'm your driver for today. I'm here to pick you up for the, your keynote. And I laugh 
And I'm sitting wow. here and I'm like, this is so crazy that here it is. I would have missed my driver, you know? Um, the campus that's bringing me set up a driver to get me there because they didn't want me exhausted when I got there to give my talk. And here it is. I spent, I, I don't know, I lost 12 minutes fooling with these crazy issues in my mind. Well, I say all that to say, the people who I've been talking to on LinkedIn, on Facebook, and sometimes that we move that conversation to phone, who are going through their own situation, many of them have the exact same situation where they, they go to their office and you know they feel like their pen is out of place. And oh my gosh, were people looking through my desk? Were they going through my stuff? What's going on? Are they really after me? You know, I'm not going to say that sometimes our institutions are very hostile places for people who are different from the norm to work, but I am going to say this: that sometimes. Um, you know, the fan is on at night or the, the maintenance service accidentally brushes up against your pen and it puts it out of place. Why? Because that larger force, hate, wants to drive you crazy. And, and what you got to do is take control of your mind and um, not allow it to drive you completely crazy because that is the end goal is to get you to a point where you cannot operate and flow in the skills and the knowledge and the gifts and the talents that are so naturally yours. You were born, you know, I close, I, I think, your <laughs> podcast where I sort of began. I resigned on May 3rd. It took me so long. Like, why? Why that date? And one day I had this thought that that was significant. I was born. I resigned on the day I was born. It's symbolic there. And it's symbolic to help me remember that May 3rd I was born to do exactly what I'm doing. And the moment I could not do what I was born to do, I had to leave that. It was a tough decision. To some people, it might have been an unpopular decision. To the colleagues and friends who I still you know, talk to, the students who I still communicate with, I met really wonderful people. I did really good work with folks at Ohio State. Um, I will not allow the circumstances of my departure to make me um, doubt or diminish the importance of the work we did. But on May 3rd of 2017, I came back into myself, at least through letter. And then by the turn of the year, I said to myself, no longer will I allow that problem to be a problem to me. No longer will I allow it to break me down like that. It is now time to turn this test, test into a testimony. It's time to turn this um, you know, whole saga into a story to turn the messy ordeal into the energy I need to get to my next next. And the moment I did it, not only did the love um, pour out on social media, and a couple of people who said, you know, hey, now that we've heard from you, have you ever thought about working here? Have you ever thought about being a professor here? And we're gonna see where those things lead. But the other cool thing that happened is I already now have on the books, what, one or two keynotes where the people are asking me to come and speak about this. Wow. Not so much my ordeal, but you know, to talk to people about the personal sacrifice sometimes that's involved in being committed to issues of equity and diversity in higher education. Or how do you become a scholar who, you know, I remember telling my students, especially now, I'm like, look, don't talk to me about critical race theory unless you really know what you're talking about. I mean, critical race theory is powerful, but it says at the beginning, race and racism are real and they're endemic in society. If I'm gonna say that as a scholar who uses critical race theory, 
I should not be surprised when I'm in meetings with people who say racist things because race and racism are part of the permanent fixture of society. Um, the other thing that this situation really taught me, and I'm going to come to a place where I'm going to write about, is because race and racism are real and it's a part of society and um, it commits itself to a critique of like liberal notions. There's no such thing as meritocracy, really. There's no such thing as color blindness. Um, you know, you have to appreciate the fact that we are all viewed and understood for who we are. So one of the reporters in the, I'll just, well, one of the reporters um, in one of the stories asked me very directly, so do I think, do you think that you had this problem at Ohio State because of your race? And they asked me like three or four times, Sean, and I, I answered it the way that I believe. Um, and that is, I think the ordeal happened to me. Didn't happen to everybody. You know, I say it in the letter, I allude to it in the letter. There are people at Ohio State and at, you know, Michigan State and at University of California. There are people at, at Harvard. There are people at all universities right now while we are on this podcast who give public talks in exchange for money. They are center directors, they are professors. Some of them are distinguished professors, way older than me, but I will say this. Most of them are not fortunate enough, I say that jokingly, um, to be, to be, to have a melanin popping like me. They're not people of color, they're not black, they're not male, they're not, um, I always say I'm the fun size, and I say that jokingly, but I do realize that um, it's real. In the academy, there are people who mistaken me as a student. They mistake me as a being way younger than I actually am. And that's a problem because I think when people perceive you to be a kid, they start treating you like a kid. Absolutely. Um, and then when they perceive someone else to be older, they give them respect and you ask them why. And they're like, oh, because he's older. Well, you have no idea how old I am. You should give me the respect. You should give all people the respect they deserve, period, not based on social identity. But I realized that part of the reason why this situation unfolded the way it did for me is because of my height, my weight, my race, my age, my sexual orientation, my political affiliation, um, my, my style of dress, my energy, the way I like to speak, the cadence to my voice, all of it. it it excites audiences and it annoys some people. So what I've come to appreciate is that's uniquely me. I'm not going to kill me because it bothers someone. If it gets to a point where um, you're trying to ask me to no longer be me, I close where I began. That is, for me, when the leader must confront the serious question of what's next. Listen, Dr. Strayhorn, this, <laughs> I appreciate um, your level of transparency and being so open to talk and it, really just taking the time out of the podcast. I think that's a perfect place uh, to put a bookmark in this. And I, I want to say thank you for being a part of this show. Um, it My means pleasure. a lot. I told you, I look at you as a research legend, so it means it, I'm excited, and I was really excited to connect with you um, and just be able to have this tighter dialogue with you. So thank you. Thank you again. I can't. Same here. Yeah. My pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for reaching out. Thanks for um, you know, connecting with me over the course of time about this podcast. And though we both lead very busy lives, I'm glad that, one, um, our worlds collided long enough for us to get this together. I'm I have great respect for you and for your work and for anyone who's an innovative mind like yourself who's creating podcasts to share 
meaningful messages and voices with people. But most importantly, I really hope that as um, folks listen to this podcast, not only do they learn about leadership and learn about um, both of our backgrounds, but that they leave inspired knowing that um, we're all here for a purpose and that probably the best thing that you could, my students always ask me, Dr. Strayhorn, will I get a job? If they're listening to your podcast, they'll know what the answer to this is. I tell them, sure, you're going to get a job, but what I hope you get is a purpose. And I hope for your audience, they'll listen to this and be reintroduced or re-energized or recommitted to their purpose and ultimately use anything that they get from this podcast to do good work. For those who are listening, I hope that you'll continue to listen to Sean's podcast and you can follow or connect with me on all things social media at TL Strayhorn or do good work. Thank you. Of course. More information along with Dr. Strayhorn's social media handles and his website will be posted along with the podcast as well as his bio. So thank you again for listening to the Mind for Rebel podcast. This episode of the Mind for Rebel podcast is sponsored by BarkBox. If you've been to my IG page, I'm sure you've seen photos of my amazingly adorable pup, Iroh. I like to get him a treat every now and then, and I do this through BarkBox. BarkBox is the monthly subscription service providing a box of toys and treats that are just as fun for you as they are for your dog. Each box contains four to six natural treats and super fun toys curated around a surprise theme each month. And if your dog is anywhere near as energetic as mine, trust me, he is, these new and unique toys will continue to keep your dog engaged, interested, and happy. Start your BarkBox subscription now and get a free month added to your plan by visiting seanjmore.com slash podsponsors. That's seanjmore.com slash podsponsors. And while you're on that page, check out the other podcast sponsors, including Gamefly, Grammarly, and Loot Crate. Thank you for listening to the Mind for Rebel podcast. Take some time to subscribe to the Mind for Rebel podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, and Anchor FM. To catch up on past episodes, go to seanjmore.com. That is seanjmore.com. And click on the podcast tab. Your feedback is important, so please comment your thoughts, suggestions, and views on any of the platforms, including my social media pages, including Instagram and Twitter at Sean J underscore more. Thank you again for your continued support as we continue to dialogue about leadership for the culture. 